Hi, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I'm very excited to be interviewing Varun Ganapathy. Varun is co-founder and CTO at Akasa, a company developing AI systems for healthcare operations. Varun's previous entrepreneurial experience includes co-founding Numovis, a company focused on motion tracking and computer vision for user interaction that was acquired by Google, and Terminal.com, a browser-based IDE acquired by Udacity. Varun received his PhD from Stanford in 2014. I personally haven't spent a lot of time delving into the AI healthcare intersection, and so it was really fascinating to speak with somebody who's building a company in that domain. I think Varun had a lot of really interesting insights, and I thoroughly enjoyed hearing about his journey to where he is today. I feel like I, I learned quite a bit from his perspective and hope you do as well. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Varun Ganapathy. The person who really helped me get started in machine learning would be uh, Andrew Ring. Um, at Stanford, I was majoring in physics and, you know, I saw, you know, Curis, which was a summer undergraduate research um, um, program at Stanford where um, undergrads could just apply to work on, on research with a professor. Um, and I found this project that I thought was really cool. It was autonomous helicopters, where it seemed that it would be a good mix of um, physics and machine learning, a good combination. And, you know, I'd always been, I'd already been double majoring in computer science, um, um, or at least taking a lot of CS classes. And so, and, and AI was something I'd always been really fascinated by. Um, so I started working with Andrew Ring and that's really where, uh, I started learning a ton about machine learning. Um, we built, you know, a re you know, a simulator for an autonomous helicopter based on machine learning. And um, ultimately, I wrote a NIPS paper, NURPS paper with uh, Peter Beal uh, on that topic. And um, we also did reinforcement learning to teach the helicopter how to fly upside down. So that's that's how my AI research got started. Mm. Yeah, I've seen your, your publication on autonomous inverted helicopter flight. It must have been pretty incredible to work with Andrew. And I think I and many others have experienced his, his teachings through the internet and just how prolific he is with online courses. Could you spend a little bit of time just on what that experience was like working with him as a student? Yeah, this was, I think, 2003 summer. Um, it was awesome. I mean, it started with during the spring quarter, Andrew had a personal reading group with all of his students who were, you know, doing curious. And this was just when he got to Stanford or maybe the second, uh, you know, a year in or something. Um, mm. And he basically went through the CS229 curriculum with us. Um, but one-on-one, -on -one, not, not maybe not one-on-one, one-on-five or something, um, where each week we had to read his notes and then present it to the whole, uh, whole group. And it was a really awesome learning experience. Like it's almost like directly getting tutored in machine learning 
by you know one of the the foremost machine learning researchers in the world. Uh, it was awesome. Um, I learned a ton. I still remember it very clearly, uh, like that room where we we sat and like you know where you know I did a write up. Like every week, we had to present what we what we had studied and learned uh, on the board um, and teach it to the rest of the group. Uh, it was a really awesome experience. Um, and then working closely with him actually on the project, what was really interesting is that I built an initial algorithm um, based on a paper by Andrew Moore. It was like you know lo- locally weighted regression using KD trees. Um, and we were able to train the algorithm off of a, a real pilot flying a helicopter. And then uh, I, I, I basically created a simulator off of that data so that we could um, then fly the helicopter virtually. It's almost like you observe the helicopter flying. Then I created this OpenGL thing with an actual radio controlled uh, you know, helicopter um, joystick. And you could actually fly it. And it was really cool. It, it was like you're actually flying a simulation of the helicopter and we had the real pilot fly it to confirm that it felt real uh, and it did. And so it, it was just a, it was a super cool project. And then um, I remember we were in, you know, I was thinking really hard, like how do we make this work even better? And I noticed this pattern in the helicopter's behavior. I'm probably getting too detailed here, but- uh, and, you know, Oh, please go ahead. But I noticed one uh, phenomenon was that the helicopter felt like it was, um, it, it had a non-physical behavior, which is that it would, like if you were going forward and you turned, its momentum would just carry over and it would like turn with the helicopter, which is not actually what would happen. The helicopter would slide, right? Like if you take a car on a dirt road, if you take a car on a road that's like has good traction and you're going forward and you turn left, the car will just turn left, right? Like that's what you expect. But if you're on like an icy surface, uh, the car will actually slide, right? Like because you're attempting to turn and it has momentum going straight and so it will continue. Yeah. Helicopters should behave like that. And so um, I basically, I remember I came up with this physics model of like, how do we model the helicopter using like forces and torques? And I presented to Andrew and we talked about it. And he's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like this is like an, a way that would like improve like how this helicopter would actually be simulated. And, and me and Peter like built it out and actually and did it. And what was really cool is that I went from prior to that point, I had never expected like I could contribute something myself to, you know, research, right? Like, I, you know, I was like, I was like, you read these until then, you know, and I was like a sophomore, I think is, you know, education is just other people have figured out stuff and you are learning from it. Um, and this was, you know, at that moment was a transition in me, which is like, I can come up with something new and actually publish it and like add to the body of work that people have, um, which was really um, cool experience. I know, you know, most people, you know, anyone who ends up in research, like does that. Um, but that was the, that was when it happened for me. And it was, it was great to have Andrew there to help me do that. Yeah. That must have been a pretty incredible shift in mindset. And of course you, you continued on to do a PhD. And I think that some of this mindset shift, I wonder if that perhaps drove your interest in entrepreneurship later on down the road, but I'd love to, before we get there, just spend a little bit of time on how this pulled, how this set of interests you developed kind of morphed into what you ended up doing in your PhD and your focuses then. My road to the PhD was winding. At first, I've always, uh, at first, I've always been interested in how do we use technology to create an impact in the real world? And so there's always been in me a divided interest between you know, developing novel technology, but then actually bringing it to um, people's hands and like having them experience it. And so 
after I worked with engineering that summer, I also worked, went to work at Google, uh, where I was, um, uh, it was just an internship. Um, and, and I basically worked on, uh, they were on scanning the world's books, you know, they were, you know, paying all these people to label the pages. And I, I, you know, having just learned a bunch about machine learning, I said, what if we could automatically label all of these pages, you know, extract the copyright date, table of contents, um, titles, all of those sorts of things. You know, there's also reordering the pages. And so I, you know, I applied a bunch of machine learning that we just done and it worked incredibly well. And so that was also really exciting to me because, you know, I was able to apply machine learning at scale. You know, I like used MapReduce to train my models and it was an amazing summer. And so I think I've always been um, like in between, I think, you know, I don't, there are some people who like doing research and the math and the research is satisfying to them. They don't, once they figured it out, they don't feel any desire to actually cause it to be used. You know, the fact that it's been figured out is sufficient. And then there are a lot of people who don't really care about research. They just care about building stuff, right? And I think I'm in between, which is that I want to come up with something new and then I want to build it. And so uh, after that project at Google, you know, I'd come up with all these, I was thinking about all these algorithms that would work better. And I remember talking to someone there and they said, if you really want to improve in a deep way, like how these algorithms work, you probably should do a PhD. I actually think that advice is not accurate anymore, um, but that's what they told me, you know, when I was, you know, undergrad. And so I thought, cool, I should go do a PhD at Stanford. And so that's how I ended up at the Stanford. Um, I wanted to, initially I worked with, uh, I, I was very interested in autonomous helicopters, but again, I wanted to do something that I thought would have some um, near-term commercial impact more broadly, um, you know, cause I, you know, I always wanted to start a company. Um, uh, you know, I, I saw like the, you know, a few years, I think like many years before me, but you know, Larry and Sergey like developed an awesome technology at Stanford and then turned, you know, started a company based on it. I always thought that was the dream, you know, the perfect, the perfect thing. Um, and so I wanted to come up with uh, some technology that would actually, um, that I thought could be commercialized and useful, but also, you know, bring forward the state of the art, um, and I took Daphne Kohler's class at Stanford and it was amazing. Um, she was, uh, I really thought Bayesian networks and graphical models were really interesting. They had a lot of aspects of what I thought AI should have. Um, and after I took that class, I really wanted to do research with her on um, biology and or, or and related topics like um, computer vision and so on. And like all of the applications of graphical models. And so that's how I ended up um, switching into that area. Um, some of the first things I did was I worked on, you know, pure machine learning research, like with Markov random fields and things like that. Uh, but then later I, I figured I was thinking about how can I turn this into a product? And one of the things that I thought would be really cool is like if a computer could in real time understand exactly what a person was doing, um, could it like, what would, what would that enable? You know, like you see movies like minority report or, you know, original Iron Man where, you know, he's just, you know, he's able to with gesture communicate to the computer and, it can watch him and interact with him. And I thought that would be amazing. Um, could a computer teach you martial arts or how to dance or, you know, physical therapy and like so many things. And at that time, remember computer vision really did not work well. This is like 2007 or something, 2008. And, and so that's when I started using depth cameras. They cost a lot. They were $5,000 a pop. Um, but I thought, look, if we can make something work really well with a depth camera, um, that could, you know, the price could drop dramatically. And just to clarify, depth cameras, um, 
A camera that doesn't measure color, it measures distance. So it tells you how far away for every pixel you got a distance to the object. Um, and so I started using those cameras. They caught, it was a Swiss Ranger 4000. It cost $5,000. And surprisingly, within a year and a half, uh, the camera went from being $5,000 to $50, which is shocking. I did not expect it to happen that quickly. I thought it would take years. Uh, and it happened dramatically faster. And the Xbox Connect came out. Um, you know, my research was on how do you use depth cameras to recognize people's poses. Uh, they're, you know, they published some papers on this. I published a bunch of papers on this. Um, I started a company based on it, and that's how I ended up, um, you know, that's again where I ended up back in uh, commercial land is like taking some cool technology, building an algorithm, and then um, actually trying to monetize it. Um, so I started a company based on that, and that ended up uh, getting acquired by Google basically immediately. So I ended up back at Google again. Uh, but that was sort of my path from, uh, you know, research to um, commercial. I think I've always been like doing both of those things. Yeah, it sounds like you flitted back and forth a little bit. So the startup you just mentioned was Numovis, right? The one on motion tracking and computer vision yeah. for user interaction. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, you know, it really was, I think it was, uh, I had, hadn't even left Stanford as a PhD student when it got acquired by Google. So it was a, it wasn't really a full company in some sense. Like, you know, we started it, we were about to, we raised, you know, we were about to raise money and then we presented it to Google and, you know, as a partner uh, and they were just like, would you like to be part of Google? And my co-founders from Stanford, Christian Plagman and Hendrik uh, and Sebastian Thrun, actually, I met him at Stanford as well. He was my co-advisor. Um, mm. You know, I guess we just thought uh, the other people on the team and, and myself also thought maybe the best thing would be to just, you know, go to Google and commercialize it there. Um, I'd also done some other things during my PhD, maybe in this vein. Um, I wrote me and my friend Jesse Levinson uh, wrote this iPhone app called Pro HDR, which was the first HDR app for the iPhone. Um, yeah. And it, again, used computer vision uh, to create a real, an interesting computational photography application um, that, you know, again, it was taking something that was like cutting edge research or like advanced research and making it usable by everyone. That's like the thing I think I'm most fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating space to be working in. And I mean, there there are so many companies trying to do this sort of thing today. But I also just find it interesting how you kind of flitted back and forth between you have Numovis, it gets acquired by Google, you spend some time at Google, but then you're like, I think I kind of want to do entrepreneurship again, right? And then you, you created iApps. And so it sounds like there was certainly from the beginning, a draw for you in terms of that entrepreneurship? Order, that order is not quite right. Uh, it's uh, I did IAPS while I was at Stanford too. I did both Novovis and IAPS concurrently at Stanford. Mm, okay, okay. Um, and so so those two happened at the same time. Numovis, uh it's not a big deal, but I'm just exact timeline. And then I left Google to start another company. Uh, this time it was called uh, Cloud Labs, called Terminal.com. But yes, you're right. I mean, basically what you're saying is true. It's like alternating back and forth between research and uh, commercialization. And that leads me to today on um, Makasa is like the same thing. It's like we publish papers um, using deep learning um, to analyze um, healthcare data, right? And but we're, our goal is to take that, take these cutting edge algorithms and make them useful to people, right? Like actually cause a meaningful difference to how healthcare is delivered in America. That's our goal, uh, improve, you know, decrease costs um, for, for health systems, like where they're spending all of this time and money 
on just doing paperwork essentially. And we believe that that could be dramatically optimized. We believe that could also, we could reduce the number of errors that actually result in patients getting these bills that are, you know, complete surprises. But our hope also is like, can we use that technology to ultimately improve the quality of healthcare as well, right? Like, you know, what information can we pull out to actually improve clinical care? Um, these are all the things that, uh, that I'm really excited about is um, using AI to make the world a better place. That's like a summary is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Let's, let's get, um, I guess, let's move on to Acasa a little bit. So before we maybe dive into a lot of details, I'd love to hear a bit about how you got interested in the AI plus healthcare space in particular. I understand that you were already looking at a few things related to biology back with Daphne Kohler. Did it start there at all? Was there something different? It started there. Um, I think uh, there, what I worked on was really like protein folding and things like that. So actually I would say I was always been interested in it, but I think I only legitimately started working on it with Akasa. Um, prior to that point, I, you know, it, I, I'd used healthcare data occasionally as a demonstration of the quality of an algorithm, you know, just, it was sort of like a, or bio, actually not healthcare, but biology data. Um, but yeah, with the CASA is the first time that I really started in for real, like working on how on machine learning and healthcare together. Mm, mm, okay. What were, what were some of the particular challenges I guess you faced in terms of trying to work on this ML healthcare intersection for the first time? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's very challenging. So I think um, first there's a lot of domain knowledge uh, that you need to know about how healthcare works. Getting access to data itself is very difficult. Um, but as part of our company, since we're providing value to our customers, you know, we help them use their data to, to make their processes more efficient. And so that's how we're able to get the data to help them. Um, I think, I think those are the two big things that are very difficult. There's a lot of domain-specific knowledge, and getting the data itself is very difficult. Um, but you know, I think it's worth it uh, because that data is is really going to um, someday dramatically improve the quality of healthcare. Uh, an AI that could actually learn from everything that has happened uh, can really help doctors do a you know to provide them with the information they need to do the best job they can, provide the best treatment for every patient. That's really the dream. Yeah. And I, I think the fact that there is much room for improvement, especially in the United States healthcare system, really shows up in the fact that we spend so much on healthcare, yet we have worse outcomes than a lot of the countries around the world. And it sounds like a good amount of what you're trying to do with the CASA is really tackling some problems that are going to help us resolve that kind of discrepancy. Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I don't know if I, I fully agree that our healthcare system is not as good as I think it's different. Um, sure. In terms of specialized care, like America has some of the best in the world. Like, you know, if you want to get treated for some disease, that's like a, a very serious disease. America, the, the leading research centers in America give you access to probably the best cures in the world. But mm. I think the place where we have problems is the average like the normal everyday healthcare, like the primary care system, that I think um, could use some um, improvement. Um, and I think it's it's really tough, but healthcare fundamentally is a really hard problem um, because 
it, it just is really challenging. Like there are a lot of trade-offs to be made. It's really hard to know uh, exactly what to do. Patients need to cooperate. There's also um, what we're trying to do at ACASA is ease the financial complexity of healthcare. We hope that, you know, when you go to the doctor, if you're not going to be afraid about a surprise bill, maybe you'll go more often and go earlier and that will help a lot. And so I think that's like what we're trying to do right now is really help solve that part of the problem. It's like, gets, make sure people are not afraid to go early. And I think that, that by going early, you sometimes prevent the bad outcomes that happen later um, that, you know, end up with an ER visit or something, which is dramatically more expensive. So I think that's the way in which uh, we need to really tackle the problem is try to make it easier for people to take care of themselves along the way um, and, and try to minimize um, the extreme outcomes. But I actually am not, I wouldn't say that I'm like super knowledgeable about it yet. I haven't figured it out by any means. I think it's a really, really challenging problem, but I'm trying to, you know, my initial thoughts are, um, those are my initial thoughts. And, and, but really right now I'm mostly focused on how can I help hospitals um, save time and money as much as possible. That's kind of like my current focus is like, how do I ease their administrative burden? The number I latch onto is that people talk about the administrative cost of healthcare in America is very, very high. Um, you know, the numbers are quoted in like the unit is like hundreds of billions, right? Not like billions, right? And so uh, we feel that if we can at least help solve that part of the issue, uh, that will have other effects and we'll, we can figure out how to make things better after that as well. Yeah, I think the picture you painted sounds right. We have incredibly talented specialists, but certainly general care, a lot of the healthcare system for a patient, it's not the best experience in the world. And I do agree that enabling people to, or I suppose creating a system where people want to go more, go earlier and, and more often would certainly help with, with a lot of preemption. It does seem like there are a lot of unfortunate cases where people just don't catch a disease because they haven't been going to the doctor often enough. And that could have been caught had they been going regularly. And I suppose creating a world in which that doesn't happen would be really nice. I'd love to talk about some of the specific challenges you're tackling with ACASA. So one thing that's really borne out throughout your work is bringing together deep research and applying this to actual products. And so, as you mentioned with ACASA, you've published quite a few papers. I'd love to talk about some of these. So for example, you had one called Deep Claim, uh, looking at pair response prediction. Do you wanna tell me a little bit about that work? So with Deep Claim, uh, what we try to do is build a deep learning model that can look at a claim and tell you if it's gonna get denied ahead of time. And the idea is that if you can if you can if you can catch these errors earlier, you prevent the whole back and forth where you submit a claim to the health insurance company, it gets rejected, then you have to deal with like the fallout from that, and all of that just like drags on and requires a lot of these touches. If you can catch these things super early, that can save a lot of time. Um, and so that's that's the main goal there. What we found from that research is there's a lot um, a lot of the time the way you can help minimize that from happening is really by doing some earlier part of the process correctly like you know that's like a fault predicting a denial is good but what will often happen is that you find out that it's really just if for that to have happened it means something in the claim was not filled out correctly and there are different processes to fill out each section of the claim and what Acasa has decided to do is, Let's just solve that problem up front. Like whatever it is that like results in how that claim is created. We're building solutions to do automated coding where we will use deep learning to read a doctor's notes, 
um, and then automatically code the claim. So that helps reduce one area of denial. We have technology that can automatically look at insurance cards, um, read them, check eligibility, and that can help prevent another area of denial, which is that you just have the wrong insurance information on the claim, which is shocking that this happens a lot, but it actually is like a major source of a problem. And then the last part that can often cause denials is, um, there, there are a lot of things, but um, prior auth authorization, um, before you do a procedure on a patient, oftentimes you need to ask the insurance company for approval. And ACASA has developed a solution to automatically go out and get that authorization and insert that into the claim. So really it's that, that paper, which we published like super early in our company, really just pointed us towards like, here are the source problems that we should be fixing and let's build solutions to solve those from happening rather than just catch it after it's happened. Let's actually fix it before it happens. And so it's sort of like prevention is better than detection, you know? And so we're trying to now prevent the problem from occurring in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that in all of these works, you've developed a more general sense for working your way from... I can detect that your claim is going to be not denied to actually getting down to what that root cause was. So you told me about a few cases, things early in the process, but I guess one thing that somebody listening to this, who's just thinking about ML in general might be thinking is, well, I know perhaps some features of my claim are causing it to get denied, but then how do I establish that kind of causal link? And I'm curious how you think about that. Super hard problem. What we did in that paper was we basically looked at the gradient of, I guess that's this podcast name, but we looked at the gradient of, of the outcome as a function of its inputs. And we could use that to highlight features that seem to be contributing the most towards the outcome of denial, right? Like basically figure out like these, the absence of these features or the presence of these features is causing this, this outcome, but it's still a really, um, it's a, it's a very challenging problem. It's like explainable AI, right? Like how do you help it tell you like, what, why is this wrong? Um, and so I think we figured it out by just knowing that these areas are the reasons for the problems. Um, I wouldn't say our model didn't like automatically figure that out. That's something we brought to bear ourselves. Um, just like learning more about the domain. It taught us that uh, these are the major causes of, of denials. And so that's, that's how we tackle that. Right, right. I can see that's where the domain knowledge aspect comes in. Yeah. Actually, I would take a step back and say, in general, when you're applying machine learning to a domain, that is not something that every human knows how to do. So for instance, computer vision is nice because everybody, you know, you can look at an image and you know, what, is there a dog there? And then you can be like, it's not detecting the dog. Right. And so you can, you understand yourself, like, why is this an image of a dog and why the model is like picking that up or not? I think what's really challenging is when you start to use machine learning in domains where a human cannot themselves solve the problem directly. And I think that is very challenging. It's like you get an input feature, like input vector. It's almost like a you are operating on opaque entities where you don't fully understand what they mean. And, uh, and how do you, and you develop a model, like, yes, you follow the common practices of like training test set, you know, split and so on. And in order to ensure that you're really, you know, like not overfitting and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's like, what, you know, it's how do you structure a product around that? Um, is tricky, right? And I think um, what I've been finding is that it's often helpful to really just understand the domain. Uh, that helps you engineer a better product um, because you actually can understand like why is the model doing whatever it is doing. Um, but I'm not saying that's generic advice. It would be cool to figure out some other way to sort of solve that problem. Yeah, for now, it does seem like 
integrating that expert information, having humans in the loop when you're trying to develop a product out of machine learning systems that tackle these specific areas is pretty vital right now. And at Acasa, I know one of your products is, has this expert in the loop approach called unified automation. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so when we're automating a bunch of tasks for our customers, um, we've noticed that there can be like the, you know, the so-called mattress in the road. Like imagine the self-driving car, right? That's an analogy I like to use is that, you know, maybe 90% of the time you're driving on the highway or 90% of miles are driven on the highway. And most of the time, you know, everything is straightforward, but once in a while there's a mattress in the road, right? Like something that just falls onto the road and your car needs to deal with that. And that's what makes a self-driving car problem so difficult. Um, you know, I was an early investor in Zooks, uh, you know, a self-driving car company. I've learned like from observing that it's like, if you have to solve a problem all the way through, like to a hundred percent, it makes it take a really long time. Right. And we, when we see that with self-driving cars. So what we did with Acasa is we said, look, our main goal is going to be, can we detect, can we solve all the common cases? And when we detect that something unusual is happening, let's have a person label that data. And it's sort of, we create this essentially 80, 20 um, optimization process where we're saying, you know, 80% of the time the model will have, you know, 20% of the actual cases or 80, you know, occur 80% of the time. And so like, we will basically be able to solve this like long tail problem by having, you know, the algorithms learn from what happens and it will be able to solve a lot of these common cases. When something unusual occurs, we send it to a person, person labels it, and sort of we're concentrating all of the edge cases into people, the people label that data, and then our model learns from that and it can automate that as well. And so it's like over time, we basically are gradually increasing the level of automation we can do, right? Like by handling more and more of these edge cases, but we're providing value the entire time. And that's like, I think a thing that I learned from observing self-driving cars is that you want to be able to not have to completely solve a problem before you can provide any value from it. With the CASA, you know, we have the luxury of we're solving something that's not like a real-time process, right? Like we can pause the world, so to speak, and say, okay, let's just pause the game here and have a person come in, tell us what to do, and then learn from that. And so that's how we use humans in the loop is, and it's not really that different from a lot of other ML companies. Like, you know, a lot of the time the data we get is from humans labeling the data, right? And so the difference is for us is that we can we use labeling as part of the delivery of the outcome. And so that way we can handle everything because we have these edge cases rather than just being like, we train the model, we run it, it screws up, you know, N percent of the time. We have a process where we use confidence to determine when it's going to make an error or like when we're less confident about the answer. And then we have a person label that. So from the customer's perspective, they're always getting the answer. Like they're always getting a good result we are taking care of it and making sure that we're amplifying the data that we can use to make our models better and better over time. Yeah, yeah. And this seems to be, as you're saying, a very interesting setting for a human in the loop approach. I've heard, or I guess I've seen a lot of research that declaims certain ways in which people attack human in the loop problems, but it sounds like what you've got going, you have a pretty well-defined space in terms of this is what we expect of the algorithm. This is what we expect of the human, how they fit together and what that eventual outcome looks like. Exactly. I guess since we've described what exactly is going on in unified automation, could you tell me a little bit about some primary use cases you've seen to whatever extent you can, any, any customer stories or improvements you've noticed from the use? Yeah, I think the two big things that we've observed is um, a lot of the things we handle are are interactions with 
websites um, or external entities. Like there's a lot of interaction between the health system and insurance company websites. And what we do with the CASA is we built um, an algorithm that can, you know, understand it can learn from how people do a task on a website and be able to automatically do that task. And so we are able to automate basically um, various operations that you would do in order to extract some information. We basically developed models that can do that very efficiently. And that's like a very common case. I know that sounds a little vague, but just imagine um, there are a whole bunch of cases that look like that. Like for instance, um, you're an insurance, you're a, um, a health system and you want to check the status of a claim. Well, what does that involve? That often involves going to a website, looking it up, figuring out what the website said and understanding it, right? And so that unstructured data to structured data, that's something we've become very good at with machine learning and natural language processing. Um, and there are a lot of different other use cases like that. Like for instance, um, this patient needs authorization. Can we go to the website, automatically answer the questions and submit it and get approval? Um, can we read doctor's notes and automatically turn them into coded claims? So a lot of the places where we see machine learning being really useful is unstructured data to structured data or in automating interactions with um, websites. And that's like a, a challenging problem because it's like a back and forth, like a, you know, you say something, the website responds with something, then you need to analyze that and answer the questions correctly. But uh, that's where AI has been really useful for us. Yeah. And I do see how in this unified automation system and the way you've been describing it, there is kind of this self-reinforcing cycle. It gets better as you collect more data and see how more people use it. I guess beyond beyond just a unified automation solution, can you tell me anything about your vision for where you want ACASA to go in the future? What role in general you envision it playing in the healthcare space? Great question. Near term, I want us to solve all of these administrative tasks um, that involve essentially jumping through hoops to ensure that you know the right services are being done for patients. And these are the, these hoops exist for a reason. Um, but we want to help ensure that doctors don't have to spend a ton of time dealing with that. And that's like one of our my main focuses. Long term, what I'm hoping for is um, to help doctors become more productive um, and or everyone in the health system. Like so far, we're talking about one aspect of improving productivity, which is, you know, eliminating administrative work. Um, what I've observed also is that when we're doing this automation, we find that if we collect all of the data for a person, present it to them in one efficient interface and let them make their important decision very rapidly and then automate the rest. It's sort of like, you know, we automate the information acquisition, human makes a decision, automate the information, uh, you know, taking action based on that decision, you can make a person three X faster. Like a lot of the time we spend doing something is hunting around for stuff. Like, you know, imagine doing your taxes. How much time do you spend hunting around for forms, right? Like you're like, Oh, where is this PDF? I have to upload. Where is that PDF or answering questions? These things take a lot of time. Um, but the intelligent decision-making is like not, is like, it's like a, a portion of that work. It's not all of that work. It's like, there's a lot of stuff around the actual intelligent decision-making that takes a lot of time for people. And what I'm hoping to do with the CASA long-term is to save doctors time on all of that information gathering and then information like documentation and taking action based on it. If I can like remove the two, you know, imagine the, a sandwich, like the bread pieces are just like kind of rote work. And then the middle is like the actual interesting intelligent part. I want to enable doctors to focus on that intelligent part and handle all the rest of it for them. And I think if I can do that, 
I can make doctors dramatically more productive, right? Let's say I'm even making them like 20% more productive. That's like, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about how much money we spend on healthcare in America, you know, it's like three to $4 trillion a year, 20% is a lot, right? Like if you think about it, right? Like, and a lot of that money is spent on labor, right? Or, you know, because healthcare is a very labor intensive business. If we can actually improve the productivity of the people in healthcare, we can actually help bring costs down. And that's like how we've always, most of our industries have become, we are able to increase our productivity as a society because of automation, right? Like we have factories, we build robots to help automate, you know, portions of factories. So healthcare needs that, I think. And like, that's what I'm trying to do. It, it's a, it's a very information heavy business. Um, and, but I think that AI can help by just making it easier for the people to do their job. Things like, for instance, um, you need to go pull your medical records from another hospital you've been to because you've gone to a different hospital. You need to get all of that information in. Currently, that's a very time consuming process, right? Like someone has to fax something over, like they still use faxes, right? In healthcare. And so can we, you know, all of this interstitial information transfer stuff, I think could be dramatically optimized. And, and so that doctors can spend their time focusing on the important things. Um, I also think long-term, I would love to provide clinical decision support for doctors. Um, I want the doctor to have access to all of the information relevant to the decision they're making for this particular patient and the most up-to-date information. Um, there's a, I heard a statistic, which I'm, you know, I think is true, which is that it takes on average 10 years for some new cutting edge research to in healthcare to become the standard of practice, like for it to happen across the board. Um, that's a really long time when people are still, you know, suffering because they're not getting the best possible treatment, right? Can AI help with that? Can we make sure that the time from new research is like, you know, a subset of the people know that this is the right thing to do to every doctor knows that it's the right thing to do. That's where I think AI can really help. And, and you know, for programmers, we use Stack Overflow, right? We Google things like we're able to, you know, we move really fast. And we're always using the most cutting edge stuff, like on a, you know, weekly or monthly basis that should happen in healthcare as well. And so I think that is the, the real goal for me is that help doctors be more productive and get up-to-date information, enable them to do their job as well as possible. And I hope that ACASA does that not just in America, but globally, um, like throughout the world, we are helping uh, improve the quality of healthcare everywhere. I love that vision. And I want to zoom in on that last aspect you noted real fast, where it seems to take 10 years for cutting edge research to make its way into practice. I think one of the things that sticks out to me just in terms of if we're going to compare like healthcare to AI research, for instance, is... For one, I guess in AI research, it is very easy to transmit knowledge through code. We have GitHub, we have so many places we can put papers on archive. But then also in medicine, I suppose it seems like new knowledge, especially knowledge that we're not sure about when you place it in a healthcare setting, that, that is affecting, I guess, people's lives in a way that running some new optimizer on your computer isn't going to. And so I'm curious just how you think about what closing that gap looks like in terms of we want that knowledge dissemination to um, happen more quickly, but then we also want to make sure that people are safe in the healthcare system. Totally. Great, great point. Um, so the stuff I'm talking about is literally, so I think, I think the way it works today is that a group of physicians like, you know, chosen from the best hospitals and academic research centers decide, you know, in, in a given, for a given illness, 
what is the best thing to do, right? Like what is the standard of care, right? And they get together and they make a decision. From the moment that that is done, I want it to be like you're deploying code, right? You just deploy a new version of healthcare. You're like, okay, you know, deploy, this is the new standard of care. And it should just, everyone, every doctor instantly should be updated, right? Like actually, right? That, that's what you want. You don't want there to be a slow process of percolation where doctors, you know, right now, like have to go, they take a bunch of like continuing learning classes. They have to continuously stay up to date. Um, and that's all great. And that should happen. But I want to also have a, um, a system that can help support them in that, in that when they're part of the problem is that there are so many different cases in healthcare. Like there are so many ailments, there are so many different patients with different backgrounds. It's really hard to keep, to have access to all of the knowledge of all of the things all the time. Right. And so what I'm hoping to see is can AI help the way it's helped all of us, right? Like with Google and search, can it help doctors by um, giving them contextual information like on the fly for what they're dealing with right then um, instantly, right? As soon as the, the central group has decided like this is the standard of care, like this is what we should be doing. Let's push that out and make sure it's like instantly updated everywhere. That's what I want. It's like, so you can push healthcare versions almost. It's like standard of care version 2.1 pushed out. Like everyone is now up to date on that new version of healthcare. Um, mm. I think that could be... You know, that would be really cool. Yeah, for sure. I think just having that pertinent information ready and available for a doctor in a given context is really powerful. I'd love to expand this a little bit just to get your thoughts on how you see AI influencing the healthcare system in the coming decades. I think that there's been a bit of a mismatch recently between expectations and reality. I know that. For example, Joffrey Hinton has said multiple times that we're going to see deep neural nets replace radiologists. And today we, we know that hasn't exactly happened. And I think that there's been a little bit of a, a tempering of expectations in that regard. But I'm curious how you see this all playing out and what you think that the role of AI in healthcare should look like. I really believe in humans in the loop. Um, and so I really, I think it's very important because healthcare has a lot of edge cases. And I think humans are really good at reasoning about edge cases. Um, I think we should focus on making sure all the rote routine stuff that we already know what should be done is happening. And so it's, and so I'll give you some examples. Um, for every single patient, we are tracking their history and we know that, yes, they should be getting um, this test right now. Like, can we make sure that that happens, right? Like some system is like constantly kind of watching out for everybody and making sure that what we know is good and should be done is actually happening. And it's a surprisingly difficult process. Like, how do you make sure, you know, someone turned whatever, some age, they're supposed to get some test, right? How do we make sure that that actually occurs, right? Like someone, something is like watching out, proactively telling them, um, this is, you should be doing this right now. This is the sort of thing that I think AI can really help with. Um, the other part I think AI can help with is providing uh, relevant research information to a doctor at the moment when they're seeing that type of patient, it's sort of like, this is pertinent to what you're looking at. The last place I think could be really cool is if we could figure out a way to mine all of the data of treatments that are occurring for patients and use that to actually determine that treatment A is better than treatment B, right? Like, can we actually, you know, the way we A-B test things and, you know, obviously you can't like A-B test things in healthcare, right? As easily, obviously. Um, but maybe there are some ways with observational data um, and natural experiments um, that occur um, to automatically figure out 
um, better treatments. For example, um, a natural experiment is something like there are rules in healthcare where if a patient is 70, they do one thing. If they're 69, they do a different thing, right? Obviously, in reality, it's not like you're dramatically a different person like the second you turn 70, right? Like, you know, like you're still kind of the same. That oftentimes provides uh, a lot of interesting information about, about like which treatment works better. Like if you find that suddenly uh, when someone turns 70, when you do a certain thing that actually works better, maybe you should be doing that earlier, right? Like this age cutoff was determined kind of arbitrarily, right? And so could we figure out like, okay, well, it turns out if you're a 69, but you have these comorbidities, actually, we should be doing the thing we would do for a 70 year old earlier. I'm giving like a very special example, but it shows kind of how from observational data, you can actually come up with better ways of treating patients. And so I think those are the sorts of things that I think would be um, very interesting applications for AI. I also think about things like using natural language processing to automatically read all of the publications that are being written so that it actually understands them all and then can like find you the ones that are relevant to the exact patient you're dealing with. That could be amazing, right? Like just imagine there's so many papers being published. You can't expect everyone to like read them all, right? Like it's just very difficult. And so AI could help with that. Um, Long-term, it's really hard to say. I think long-term what happens is we use automation to make it possible to deliver a higher volume of healthcare cheaper, right? And that way we keep costs down while improving quality and improving overall outcomes for everyone. That's what we've done with every other industry. That's like what needs to happen in healthcare as well, right? Like that's, and in fact, every doctor will be better off because if you make them five times more productive, like they're able to now help way, way more patients and the demand for healthcare is just going up and up and up, right? And so that I feel like is what we should actually be, uh, that is what AI will end up eventually doing uh, for, for healthcare. Yeah. That, that picture makes a lot of sense to me. And as you said, it seems like we've done this in a lot of other industries, but healthcare has remained a little bit resistant or just has its own set of challenges. My final question to you, Varun, would be a more personal one. So earlier when we were discussing your journey into research and doing a PhD, you talked about how there was that moment for you where you realized, hey, I can actually make a concrete contribution to the advancement of knowledge. And you did that with your research. You're doing that through developing products and with your entrepreneurship. For somebody who's perhaps also thinking about this, how do I contribute to knowledge? How do I really create an impact in the world? Who's interested in, in something like AI, perhaps going along a, a path that might reflect yours a little bit? What advice would you give? It's really hard to give advice exactly right now. Here's the challenge um, in AI is that um, big companies have the most data and they have the access to the most compute. And so I think it's much easier to do research there now um, because you have just the ability to sort of do these large experiments and, and, and actually see things work in the real world. So ironically, I think today industry is doing a lot of cutting edge research in, um, in AI. Historically, though, like, you know, and, and maybe this could change again, like academia could, of course, also get access to all of that, you know, all, all of that compute, you know, there's obviously the cloud. And so hopefully it's possible to also do this there as well. Okay, uh, here's my generic advice. Try to understand the math behind how things work. It's easy to just say, okay, I'm going to like cut and paste this model and try it out, right? And you can do that and that's fine. But to me, I would say, is like really deeply understand the math of how it works um, because that will really give you a lot of intuition about why your model is working or not. 
And at the end of the day, like when you're doing AI research, you are trying to solve problems. I would say the other, the other piece of advice I would give is a piece of advice that Sebastian Thrun gave me, which is that first get an end-to-end system working. Like what, you pick a problem that you're interested in. Like, so I want to automate X, Y, or Z, or I want to develop a model or an algorithm to solve X or Y or Z problem, right? And get something end-to-end working first and really become very familiar with the data and really understand it. And then try to construct try to construct a series of experiments that actually teach you something more about the problem or the domain or the model to help you to help you solve that. And try to get a deeper understanding of what you're doing. Like instead of just like, okay, like right now today it's very easy to look at all these deep learning models that people have come up with and say, oh, it's like random, right? It's just like it's like it's like zoology almost. It's like, oh, they're trying this model or that model, like whatever. Like I don't really understand what's going on. But actually, if you look more closely, there is an underlying structure that you can see and then it all will make much more sense. And so I would say, try to learn that structure, try to understand like what is similar about different models, what is different, and then how do these optimizers actually work? How does the actually understand the gradient, like how to calculate it? Um, Make sure you actually get that because it's, it's critical for actually making things work in the real world. I see a lot of people, they just try models without really fully understanding it and then it doesn't work. Uh, sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. And then they're sort of stuck. And I think that's the advice I would give. That's a very detailed advice on like how to be a machine learning practitioner. Uh, meta advice from a career standpoint, make sure you're really interested in what you're doing day to day. And I would say technical expertise is really useful. I think just being able to yourself do something just makes you a very valuable person to have around. Like if you can build stuff yourself that can solve a problem, it helps you in a variety of ways. If you want to start a company, Uh, being able to build some prototypes is really important in order to show off like the potential value of what you're trying to do. Um, And it also helps you really understand when you get a team around you and like how to actually like help them to, to solve problems. But I would say like at a deep level, figure out like what actually motivates you. Like, why are you doing it? Um, I would say is my generic advice and then try to follow that for me though. I want to make sure whatever I'm doing with AI makes the world better. And I also wanted to have positive like impact on people. Like I want people to actually benefit from it. And so that that's what motivates me. Um, for other people, it could be something different, but figure out what really motivates you and try to follow that. That's really fantastic advice. Thank you for sharing that, Varun. And to close out, I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing in, in healthcare with Akasa and for spending the time with me today. No, thank you. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.